11, and that's in your pew Bible is page 559, 559 in your pew Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that or whether both alike will be good. This is God's living and active and inerrant and perfect word. Uh, Let's ask him now to bless our time in studying it and that he would apply it to us. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning that you've given us where we yet again, as your people, get to gather before your word and by the power of your spirit, behold your son, all to the praise and glory of your name. This morning is about you, God not about us. And so we pray that as we read and meditate upon your word, you would do just that in an amplified way. Make us to see your glory, to by faith behold our Savior Christ, and in so doing be sanctified and conformed into his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus in Luke chapter 6 gives the commands to give. That Christians are to live their lives not from the perspective of taking and, and getting, but from a consistent place of giving and serving. That's what it means to be conformed to God. Just as God gave his best in giving us his son, so too ought we always to strive to give our best in whatever it is, to give until it hurts. Give what you've got to others. And then Jesus gives this promise to those who do give. He says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use to give, it will be measured back to you. That's a great promise. And it's wisdom found right here in Ecclesiastes. This morning's text is focused on what it means to live a life like that. A life that gives and spends and serves. The chapter begins with a pair of commands that are admittedly hard to interpret. The actual commands, the imperative words in each verse are easy enough to understand, to cast and to give. But the poetic images in each present something of a difficulty, right? What does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? And then, 
after many days, be able to find it. I can't help but think, of course, about going down to Annapolis Harbor, something my family loves to do quite a bit, and we, we just sit there at the harbor and we throw bread to all the ducks that, that come, and, and they'll keep coming and eating the bread, and we do that quite a bit. Is this what Solomon means here? And if so, why find that bread again after many days? I don't want the moldy, duck-digested bread back. One interpretation, often taken by older commentators, suggests that the image of casting bread referred to the, the sowing of seed in a floodplain. The annual inundation of the Nile Delta would have had an opportune time for sowing seed right before all the water receded, leaving this kind of loamy waterbed in which the seed, apparently lost in the water, would actually get deposited in nutrient-rich soil and then produce this beautiful harvest. On this interpretation, what a person finds after many days is a harvest of grain, thus the farmer getting a good return for sowing his seed. I'm not sure I buy that interpretation, though, because Solomon doesn't say sow your seed, but rather cast your bread. There are two other interpretations which I think make more sense and actually fit within the context better. I actually like both, and I'll propose both and let you decide which seems to be closer to what Solomon is saying here. The first one goes like this, that it's about helping those in need. Solomon is encouraging us to be generous in giving to the, uh, giving to the poor. Bread cast upon the waters is, is sharing our bread, sharing our food, our goods with someone who needs help. Well, the point is that if we're generous with others, when they're in need, eventually when we ourselves are in need, we'll get help in our time of trouble. What gives this interpretation plausibility is that there are actually a dozen or so other proverbs from around the ancient Near East written around the same time as this one and from the, the same area which use the exact same language but are unambiguous and clear that it's meant to help the needy. So Egyptian and Ara Arabian proverbs talk about casting bread and they mean helping the poor, helping the needy. Thus, the idea is to take your bread, your daily provision, and give it out without expecting anything in return. You've cast it out, and you don't know whether it'll come back or not, but yet you give it away anyway. You give your wealth to help those in need. But then Solomon adds this promise, doesn't he? For you will find it after many days. In other words, in unexpected ways and at unexpected times, your charity, your, your kindness, your generosity will pay off. It'll come back to you. What Solomon is promoting here is generosity. Be generous. Even when there are no foreseeable guarantees of a return, but realize this, the person you help in their time of need may very well come back to help you in your time of need. Solomon echoes this very principle throughout Proverbs. So Proverbs 14, 31 Solomon says this, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19.17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. 
Then there's Proverbs 22, verse 9. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Or the principle is clearly a biblical one. And if, and if that's what Solomon is getting at here, and it might be, it fits with verse 2 in that he's telling us to give over and beyond what's expected. See that? Give a portion to seven, the perfect expected amount, or even to eight, over and above what's expected. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In other words, give over and beyond because when disaster strikes, and, and, and you don't know when that's going to happen to you, and, and you'll be in need when that does happen to you, well, then those who you gave to previously will be able to give back and help you when you're poor. It's how a functioning, unified, godly community works. You help those and they help you. That interpretation works. I think it's a solid one. There's another interpretation, though, and it goes like this. Not as a call to philanthropy, but as a call to wise investment. On this interpretation, the images in verses 1 and 2 come from the business of international trade. To cast your bread upon the waters is to engage in international trade. Sending your grain or any other produce or product out to sea and then waiting for the ships to return with fine goods from foreign lands. Solomon would have done this in his own kingdom. There's lots of things that Israel cannot provide on its own, so they would send out bread and then wait for the peacocks and the lions and the giraffes and any other fine metals or golds that they wanted back in Israel. Therefore, when Solomon says you'll find it after many days, he means you'll receive the reward that eventually comes back after taking the risk of a wise investment. Our proverb today would say something like this, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And this interpretation also fits with verse 2, where we can see Solomon advising us not to, well, as we'd put it today, not put all our eggs in one basket. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. In other words, spread out your investments. This is Solomon's way of telling us to diversify. Rather than focusing narrowly on a single product or on a single service, many companies try to widen their interests. Why? Well, verse 2, because you never know what disaster may happen on the earth. This is Solomon once again reminding us of the uncertainties of the future and the many frustrations and misfortunes of life. And so he says, invest wisely, widely. We saw last week, how we made that startling comment that money answers everything. You remember that? And so this, this very well may fit in with what Solomon is saying here, unpacking for us wise ways to invest and, and think about our money. Invest wisely in order to have that money that helps us enjoy life in a vain and futile world. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart and invest wisely in order to do so. Again, that's not a bad interpretation. Honestly, I think both work, both interpretations. Uh, they can be taken together, invest wisely, in order, according to the other interpretation, give generously. For as John Wesley, the Methodist preacher and evangelist said, make all the money you can, save all the money you can, in order to give away all the money you can. That's wise. If you understand what's going on here, 
I think the underlying message is quite clear. We don't know. You don't know what's going to happen in life. Therefore, take risk. Either risk it in giving away your possessions to those who are in need, or take risk in investing. Maybe do both. Again, what's clear here is that Solomon is against any kind of hoarding. He's opposed to any kind of holding on to things in order to find security and safety. The verbs he uses are not keep, hoard, and accumulate. No, he tells us to cast away and to give away. But, but we, we, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I, I, I mean, I need to keep all of this for a rainy day, right? Well, no. Solomon says in verse 2, you're right. You, you, you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. There very well may be rainy days coming, but you're wrong to therefore keep everything you've got. No, says Solomon, send it away. Give it to those in need. Save a portion of it, sure. Do you have a, a percentage of your income devoted to savings in rainy days? That's wise. But what does Solomon say in verse 2? Save just a portion of it. Give a portion of it to seven. Maybe even to eight. The underlying issue here for Solomon is that we live our lives boldly by taking risks. Cast your bread. Give a portion to seven. No, to eight. Live over and above and courageously in the face of real risk. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's okay. We see this principle, I think, pop out at us even more because of what he tells us in uh, verses three and four. Look there. If the clouds are full of rain, there's your rainy day, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What's he saying here? He's saying, stop watching the clouds. Stop being indecisive and inactive because you're always concerned about what crises or, or bad turn of events might be around the corner. Now Solomon's telling us here to not worry about the things we can't change. Clouds come and clouds go. Sometimes when they drop their rain, it refreshes and re-nourishes the ground. But sometimes, though, it's devastating. It floods. It floods basements. It destroys crops. It destroys cities. And here's the point. You don't know. You'll never know. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. And you know what trees never do? They never send out a text message the weekend before saying, I'm going to fall on this day and in this place. I think it's so ironic uh, that just last week in a members meeting, we voted as a church on what to do with the trees that may or may not fall on our congregation uh, and exactly with what Solomon is saying here. Now, Solomon is charging us here to stop focusing so much, so much of our energy on issues we can't change. That's so much, so many of us become consumed with worry about things we have no control over. Solomon is saying, really? Are you worried about that? Or you might as well just sit there and worry about whether that cloud's going to rain and that cloud won't. 
You might as well sit here and look at the trees and worry about where exactly you think that tree will fall and when. Stop it, says Solomon. What's the result of this kind of absurd anxiety? Verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. People get stuck in these ruts of anxiety. They become immobilized with fear and worry, paralyzed at not knowing the future, indecisive. Do I choose this job or that one? Young people, do I marry this person or that person? I remember in seminary when it would come time for me to write a paper, I would become so anxious about how I wanted the paper to actually turn out the end product, specifically anxious about wanting to know all the details on any given subject before really writing my paper. It was pride. I wanted the professor to think highly of me. Uh, and, and so often, what that would lead to was me procrastinating because I wasn't sure I knew the details enough. I hadn't figured it all out yet. I probably knew the issues better than most of the other students. I like to think so. But I was anxious that I didn't know it all, and I didn't have that right nuance note. And so again, I become paralyzed. And so many times, I turned my paper in late. And even though I wrote what I thought was probably a better paper, presenting the issues better than any other student, they'd consistently get better grades than I would because I turned it in late. People do these kinds of things all the time. Putting things off that need to be done because, well, it looked like it might rain today. Maybe the weather will be better tomorrow. I'll do the lawn then. Solomon's point here is simple, isn't it? You don't know. And if you keep doing nothing, nothing will keep happening. You'll never reap what you never sow. Now, rather than watching the wind and the clouds, imagining all the difficulties and waiting for just the right circumstances, we should try and do what we can with whatever it is God has given us to do in this life. Don't waste your talents, says Jesus, by doing nothing with them, burying them in the ground to be saved for a rainy day. No, take risks. Invest your talents. Do something. Pursue the dream you think God might be calling you to do. Get involved in ministry. Show mercy to someone in need. Start a friendship with a neighbor. Do they speak a different language with you? Try it anyway. See what happens. Whatever it is you do, don't hold back because of fear or the, the circumstances aren't just right. I hope you see here how Solomon is helping us to fight anxiety. Deal with your fear by giving. And spending yourself, says Solomon. One of the only certainties in life is that the future is uncertain. There's always some kind of risk involved in what we do. But that risk, says Solomon, isn't meant to paralyze you. No, we're, we're freed to live in that risk by living generously. By having an open hand with the gifts that God has given us. Cast your bread upon the waters. Give your goods away. Do you worry about money? Do you tend to have a, a tight grip on what goes in and out of your bank account? Does panic and fear set in uh, when you begin to see your savings dwindle? 
Solomon is encouraging them to, to pry open your fingers one by one by practicing giving your money away. Yeah, just give it away. Give it to someone in desperate need. Give it to the cause of the gospel by supporting the local church. I think Paul picks up on this very passage in Ecclesiastes when in 2 Corinthians 9, he gives these instructions. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. That's taken from Ecclesiastes 11. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one, says Paul, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, a giver with a happy heart. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may actually abound in every good work. God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way, says Paul, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Paul's encouragement here is to give, give generously with a happy heart and take risk in doing so. In other words, Paul sees here a call on Christians to give in surprising ways, all after the pattern of how God has given to us. Maybe holding on to money isn't your vice. Others of us suffer from anxiety in our time. We desperately cling to and feel like we need that special me time. We feel paralyzed to, to be around and spend ourselves with others. You might use that identifier of an introvert. I think Solomon is encouraging you here to consider doing, well, exactly the opposite of what you'd expect. You might be surprised at what you'll find when you start having others in your space. Maybe opening up your home to fellowship, fostering care for others. God in his grace might actually strengthen you to cope and, and even learn to enjoy the presence of others, brothers and sisters. The world won't end, won't die. You'll begin to die to self and perhaps even find joy in what God has called us to do all along, serving others and opening up our lives to give to them. The bottom line is this. How many of us this morning are living in the realm of genuine risk by giving of ourselves generously, giving what we have, giving of who we are, giving away our best, in reflection of the God who has saved us by giving away his best, namely his son. Church, are we not children of the living God? Or what are we worried about then in giving away all that we've got? Do we think God won't supply our needs? Do we think that he can't supply our needs? Are we afraid God can't help us and sustain us through rainy days? Is God not in complete control over every raindrop in every rainy day that has ever befallen this cursed world? Absolutely he is. Friends, we serve and live under the loving providence of a perfect father who loves us with a prodigal love. God is a spendthrift. He spent his own son on us. And here we are hoarding and holding back. In the history of risk-taking, 
there may have been no riskier move than in sending the divine son of God to become a man and have him give his life as a ransom for many. God sent God to die at the hands of mortal men. And yet, biblically, the conclusive orthodox truth of the matter is that there is no risk for God at all. That move was not a risky one for him. What's the point? There's nothing risky to God. What's the application? Therefore, don't worry about a thing. Because every little thing is going to be all right. You wanted me to finish that. I wanted to sing it too. This is what Solomon concludes in verse 5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Solomon is likely speaking here of the mystery of how the human spirit animates the human body within the womb of a mother. We know perhaps more about uh, birth and, and, and the growth of a child than Solomon ever did. But this knowledge we have now knows nothing about the mysteries of full personhood, Right? Body, soul, and spirit. Just a side note, take note of the fact how Solomon describes the person within the womb as a living spirit. It has full personhood. It is not, as science more and more corroborates, just a mere clump of cells, but a living, feeling, spiritual human being made in the image of God. Easy application. But the point here is that God has perfect knowledge of what's happening within this growing child and is in fact in complete control over every aspect of each and every child's development. So, as you sit in anxious despair watching the wind and waiting for raining clouds, consider the mysterious and perfect wisdom of God. He knows what's going to happen. He's in control of every tree that falls. He knows every cloud and every drop and where it's going to land and has decisively ordered it to be so. Trust him. Give up your anxiety by focusing your heart and attention on him. Really. That's what faith is, isn't it? Resting on God in the midst of what you cannot see. Trusting in God and what you do not know. And you know what this allows you to do, right? It frees you up to live. To get out of that rut of anxiety. To take real risk and to really live. Look at verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. Don't procrastinate. Don't be lazy. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Do you see what Solomon's saying here? Do something. Act. Live. No matter what's going to happen. Because you don't know. No matter what the seed is in life, sow it. Do it first thing in the morning, and then in the evening, and then don't stop there. Don't withhold your hand. Keep acting. Keep sowing. Are you in a situation where you have an actual opportunity to talk to someone about the gospel? Don't be idle. Sow the seed. Don't wait for, you know, a better chance. Oh, it just wasn't quite right. It was a little bit awkward. No. No, talk now. Tell them now. Are you in a position to help support the work of the gospel? Do it. Sow your seed. Give of what you have to help in the spread of God's kingdom. Oh, but I've got kids to go to college. Okay. 
but do what you can. Help now. You think you can take your family and maybe move to Indonesia, to Nicaragua, to North Africa, and give your lives to the mission of the gospel? Helping to plant churches and tell people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ about this gospel. Well, then do it. Go. Verse 6 is simply doubling back around and repeating for us the wise instruction in verse 1 and 2. Cast your bread, give your money, sow your seed. Don't wait and under a pretext of looking for better circumstances, succumb to the debilitating fear of anxiety. No, courageous faith in a good and sovereign God enables us to live and take bold risks. Even when we have no idea of how it will all turn out. Solomon says in verse 6, For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In other words, you're not God. Let God be God, and you live faithfully doing all you can in his name. I think he's telling us here to try different things as well. Again, not putting all our eggs in one basket. In the morning, do one thing. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. And then in the evening, try something else. Maybe that'll work if your morning effort doesn't. Tons of applications to think through as a church. As we engage the community and we we seek to be a witness to the gospel, uh, declaring the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, there's different avenues and ways we can do it. Sometimes they prosper and they work and bear fruit. Sometimes they don't. And that's okay. Do we give up? We punch it. In the morning and in the evening, we sow our seed. Lots of people wrongly conclude that if God is sovereign over everything, then why bother doing anything at all? And that's an entirely wrong conclusion here. Solomon will agree, yes, God is sovereign over every detail of life, and everything will happen exactly as he has planned it out. But his conclusion is the exact opposite. His biblical conclusion says this, therefore, don't hold back. Do everything you can and give it all you've got. Go big or go home. In the history of missions and evangelism, the greatest preachers of the gospel, the the boldest evangelists and missionaries who have gone to the edge of the world have been men and women who have sunk their teeth deeply into the doctrine of God's sovereign providence and have therefore been motivated to live life without reserve. Because nothing can stop God's plan. And God has called us to go out into all the nations. Then friends, the answer isn't to do nothing. No, the answer is to go. Do it. Sow your seed. Cast your bread. Give your money. Live with risk. We read earlier from Isaiah 55, which Chris prayed out of for us. Listen again to what God promises through the prophet about sowing the seed of God's word. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you hear that? God's word never returns void. So we could rephrase that in the language of Ecclesiastes. 
God's word is never vain. It's never an empty and futile word. It's never frustrated. It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. So again, I think Solomon is guiding us here, pushing us to step out of our fear-ridden inactivity and in reliance upon God, act boldly. Sow seed actively. Take risks faithfully. Live fully. Jesus Christ gave his all in sowing seed. He didn't just preach and teach effectively. No, but he actually gave his own life effectually. He shed his own blood to seed the soil of our salvation. And Jesus didn't hold back, but, but sowed sparingly and will assuredly reap bountifully, redeeming everyone whom he's died for. And there's, of course, wonderful assurance in this, that by believing in Jesus, we can be sure that, he, uh, that we will be forgiven for all of our sins. Nothing Christ accomplishes will ever become futile or frustrated. If you trust in him, all your guilt is atoned for. All your sin is taken away. Friend, if you've not yet believed in Jesus Christ, can I ask you, as I think Solomon would here in this context, what's holding you back? What fear or anxiety is keeping you from following after Jesus Christ and submitting to him as your Lord? Listen here to Solomon. Take a bold and courageous step of action and come to him with a humble heart. Repent of your sin. Turn from the idleness of your own unbelief and find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, this is one step of faith that may to you right now seem the riskiest of all. But this risk is life. I promise you, the gospel promises you, the only thing you will lose here is your guilt, your shame, and your condemnation. Uh, you'll gain Christ, and you'll gain all life that's found in Christ, all forgiveness and righteousness and sanctification, and an assured glorification to be with him forevermore in the glories of heaven. Friends, as we come to a close, ask yourself what it is that's guiding your perspectives on life. Is it a fear of the unknown? Anxiety over the current political nature of our nation? Fear of geopolitical warfare, attack from foreign nations? Fear of losing money in a falling stock market? Just think, what anxieties rise up in your heart over things you cannot control? Solomon is guiding us here to shift our perspectives, not away from the things we don't know or can't control, but I think through them, to the God that we do know and who is himself in control. Look at the things we, we do know from the perspective of those things we don't. And once we realize that there are certain areas of our life we will never have a grasp on, we'll never fully understand nor ever fully control, it changes the way we think about those things that we do know. The uncertainties of life draw us closer to the certainty of God. And then I think once there, we become enabled to live faithfully and boldly, boldly taking risks and living life in the confidence of a good father who's watching. Friends, church, Greenbelt Baptist Church, I am praying that we would live like that more and more. Faithfully, boldly, 
taking risks and giving of ourselves in every area of life.